2: I think there is a viable position that Section 230 does protect products like ChatGPT. Essentially, and and this point is not not taken well by the technologists, I'll just sort of throw that out there. Um, But in my opinion, at this current point in time, ChatGPT operates a lot like Google Search um, or any any search engine for that matter. A user inputs a query and the search engine responds with third-party content.
1: I'm Quinta Jurassic senior editor at Lawfare, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, March 9th, 2023. Today, we're bringing you an episode of Arbiters of Truth, our occasional series on the information ecosystem. During recent oral arguments in Gonzalez v. Google, a Supreme Court case concerning the scope of liability protections for internet platforms, Justice Neil Gorsuch asked a thought-provoking question. Does Section 230, the statute that shields websites from liability for third-party content apply to a generative AI model, like ChatGPT? Luckily, Matt Peralt of the Center on Technology Policy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill had already been thinking about this question and published a Lawfare article arguing that Section 230's protections wouldn't extend to content generated by AI. I sat down with Matt, along with my fellow senior editor, Ellen Rosenstein, and Jess Myers, Legal Advocacy Counsel at the Chamber of Progress, to debate whether ChatGPT's output constitutes third-party content, whether companies like OpenAI should be immune for the output of their products, and why you might want to sue a chatbot in the first place. It's the Lawfare podcast, March 9th. Does Section 230 protect ChatGPT?
3: Before we get into the question of whether chat GPT is or is not protected by Section 230, I want to first set the stage as to the underlying liability that might be at issue. In other words, what sorts of things could you even in principle sue a chatbot for? Putting aside the immunity question, and Matt, let me let me start with you. Like, What sorts of potential claims would we even be talking about here?
4: So, I mean, it could be any state civil law claim, it could be defamation claims, and it's not just the substance of the claims. I think part of actually what I assume you're getting at, and I think this is going to be an important part of the conversation between me and Jess, is what would be the product that would give life to something where there might be liability? And that could really vary. And I think we actually don't know very much about that because we don't know how these products are actually going to be implemented, whether they're going to to be integrated into existing tools or whether they're going to be... Standalones that feel like some of the trial products that we've seen so far.
3: Can You just say what, why that matters. This distinction is is the issue about well, you're in one case you're suing ChatGPT directly, or you're suing OpenAI, or maybe you're suing Microsoft for integrating it. Is that what you mean by it? Kind of depends on what the product is.
4: Well, I guess I guess what I'm trying to get at,
3: and I would really I'm
4: excited to hear Jess's take on this, is that Section 230 doesn't create create the underlying liability regime it is a regime that enables essentially one of its main features is procedural that it enables uh, platforms to kick cases out of court before discovery and that's really important but then if they proceed through discovery the question is is there some kind of underlying liability and how that how that underlying liability plays out might be dependent on how a a generative AI tool is actually used in practice. Um, whether it ends up being something that's used in search results, for instance, or if it was used purely privately, or if it was used in some sort of public posting functionality that felt more like Facebook or Twitter.
2: Yeah, Matt has it exactly correct, and and I want to really focus in on, on this point because it's an important one. I feel like often in these in this discourse, folks sort of rush to, well, how is Section two hundred and thirty creating a problem uh, when it comes to these emerging technologies? And it's important that we take a step back and think about who are we actually going to sue? Who who are we going to bring these actions against? And it was noted, you know, that that might be Microsoft, that could be OpenAI, for example. Um, but more importantly, what are we bringing as a claim as well? And I think, you know, Matt's got it perfectly. Um, there's all sorts of, of claims that that could be brought, you know, state civil defamation, as, as Matt pointed out. One of the things that I'm thinking about is this emergence of dangerous design and product liability theories that are starting to get in in my opinion carved out from Section 230 as well. So, you know, I think especially with what's going on with the um the two Supreme Court cases, depending on on how the court decides, it, you know, in the Gonzalez case, for example, we could see an array of, of claims that plaintiffs can bring, not only against you know, individuals, but also Against the actual products and and the company owners of those products as well. And then the question
4: I think, Alan, is if we're if how do companies function and create these tools against that potential legal backdrop? In other words, like at what point are lawyers jo- joining product meetings and saying you can't build in that particular way that you would like to build because there's potential legal risk for all the reasons that Jess described. And I think the thing that I was expressing concern about in the lawfare piece is that if that happens very early in this technology's development, my guess is then there are going to be all these use cases that are very deeply valuable for our society that come off the table because the way the technology is deployed is extremely narrow or extremely narrow relative to its potential deployment because lawyers are citing that legal risk at a very early stage of the product development
3: process.
2: Which I would argue, you know, again, that's sort of the point of Section 230. I was just listening to the Senate Judiciary hearing, you know, uh, 30 or so minutes ago, and it was thrown around that Section 230 is outmoded. It was created at a time when all these technologies, these different web technologies didn't exist. And I always find that argument, you know, not compelling because the entire intent around Section 230 was anticipating the future of internet innovation. Stuff like, for example, ChatGPT. You know, they may, Congress may not have been thinking specifically about ChatGPT at the time, but the entire point was to, you know, get getting to what, what Matt just said, encourage companies to continue innovating and building on the internet, to keep innovating on what Web3 and Web5 sort of look like um, as well. So to the extent that these products and services feel like they are precluded from putting out new features or new products that change the way we communicate online, that would be, in my opinion, you know, that that would be a, a tragedy, I think, for, for the internet and for technology as a whole.
3: So we are d- definitely going to get into the question of sort of how ChatGPT should be regulated and what role there should be or should not be for something like Section 230. Um, but I, I do first, now that we kind of set out the Potential substantive liabilities out on the table. I do want to then go to sort of the the piece that was the inspiration for this conversation, which was sort of Matt's great post for Lawfare about well arguing that Section two hundred and thirty would not, as it is currently understood, protect something like ChatGPT. So, Matt, can you just give us an overview of the of the argument, and then uh, Jess will go to you to talk, talk about sort of your your thoughts and where you agree or disagree with that.
4: So it's really nice of you to applaud the piece in Lawfare, but I think it's also uh, maybe important to applaud Lawfare for taking a piece like this. This is 3000 words on a a nitty gritty law that's been important to the tech community and have the opportunity to get into some thoughts that I had about that and potential remedies um, in policy and law for some of the challenges that I think might be emerging in this field is really it's really an extraordinary thing. And Lawfare is so unique in the field and provide such a unique outlet for scholars and people um, looking closely at these issues. It's just really incredibly valuable. Um, the, the core of the piece was the idea, and this is where you've heard a lot of agreement between me and Jess, but I think this is where we potentially disagree that at least in my view, I think Section 230 won't protect um, generative AI tools like ChatGPT. And that's because the statute the statute delineates between information content providers and interactive computer services, information content providers can't use Section 230 as the defense of liability, interactive computer services can, and basically the rough way to think about it, and Jess will probably correct me if I don't get the nuances right here, but information content providers are the creators and interactive computer services are the hosts. And the reason that I think ChatGPT and other generative AI tools will likely be deemed to be information content providers is because the definition in the statute is is that you are an information content provider if you create or develop content in whole or in part. So the question that judges will be asking is, do generative AI tools at least develop content in part? And it seems to me like it is likely that at least in some cases, they will reach that conclusion. And then the question is, well, what does that mean for tech platforms? And I think what it will mean is that they will try to design their products so as to avoid the kinds of use cases where they will be found to potentially be information content providers. And that will result in, I think, a lot of lost opportunity.
1: So Jess, let me now kick it over to you. Why is it that you disagree with Matt's assessment?
2: Yeah, so I I have to echo Matt here. I'm really glad we're having this discussion. It's an important one. And Matt, I have to applaud you for kicking off this discussion in the first place with your piece. I actually I agree with a lot of of Matt's piece as well. I, where I'm, I'm pushing back is, I, I just wanted to make the argument that I think there is a viable position that Section 230 does protect products like ChatGPT, essentially, and and this point is not is not taken well by the technologists. I'll just sort of throw that out there, um, but. In my opinion, at this current point in time, ChatGPT operates a lot like Google Search um, or any any search engine for that matter. A user inputs a query and the search engine responds with third-party content. Interestingly, the courts have been aligned on when a computer service creates or remixes existing third-party content. And we see that in the Google Search context. When Google creates those snippets that describe what is at the URL uh, of the search result. The courts have ruled that have held consistently that Section 230 applies to those snippets because those snippets derive from user-generated content, third-party content. So, you know, like I said, it's generally accepted that Section 230 does not protect online services and users that materially contribute to unlawful content. Um, And this test comes from the roommates.com case, which is typically cited for gray areas where the provider of the content is unclear, which goes to Matt's point. The courts are going to have to de- decipher between an information content provider and an you know just an interactive computer service that is hosting, curating, uh, making publishing decisions about third-party content. Now, in the roommates case, uh, it involved a uh, i guess roommates' finding website, and it provided a the, the website provided a drop down for users to make selections that would discriminate against um other people so for example, you could pick out that you would want you know only white roommates for example. And the court held that Section 230 does not apply there because roommates is the one that created the drop-down menu. Roommates is the one that is essentially uh, encouraging the users to discriminate against others uh, in violation of the Fair Housing Act. So at that point, it, it made sense, I guess, for the court to say that is where 230 drops off. Now, importantly, though, also in roommates... The website provides a open text box and encourages users to write about what kind of roommates they're looking for um, and to write about some of their specific requirements. And uh, that part of the, the the website was also challenged and roommates defended on Section 230. The result there for the actual web form where they're just encouraging the user to input content uh, is protected by Section 230. And I think that's where Chat GPT lies, is in that, again, sort of gray area between you know the difference between providing a drop down menu and providing an input box so in the chat gpt example here it's asking for a user ChatGPT doesn't spit anything out unless you the user input something to get those results so i to kind of push back on matt here to summarize my my arguments a little bit i think in the case of chat gpt 230 would apply for two reasons one The fact that the output for ChatGPT at this current time is really a remix of existing third-party public information out there on the Internet. And I will say I think that that point is actually a little bit tenuous because I think the courts are starting to be reticent to grant Section 230 for those um, curatorial activities. But number two, I think the, the stronger point here is that, again... No content is created unless it is kicked off by the third-party user using ChatGPT, and I think that's going to be the stronger argument—the sort of exception that was found in Roommates—to protect ChatGPT-like products going forward under 230.
3: So, I want to pick apart those two those two arguments for a second, and I, I want to focus on the question of whether this is just remixed content or something else. And and then maybe other folks um, can can sort of key in on the the question of this being responsive to, to user I- inquiries. The, the question that I had about your point about um ChatGPT mostly being sort of remixes is putting aside the question of whether or not the courts want to give 230 protection to curatorial choices. I want to just push a little bit on the question of whether ChatGPT really is just remixing. So I've played with it. I'm sure everyone here is, you know, on this call has, has played with ChatGPT. And one thing that I found was that it did seem to give Answers that were so bespoke to my queries that it was very hard for me to think that it was just quote unquote remixing. So I mean, you know, if two examples for me come to mind, I just asked it out of curiosity to, you know, critique John Rawls's theory of justice from the perspective of Carl Schmitt. And it gave me like an interesting answer. That, Alan, that's a perfect Alan question. I, I know. Well, no, no, no. So I'm going to give you an even, an even more perfect Alan question. So it gave me a pretty good answer to that. And then I asked it, because for those who may not know, I live my entire life in Emacs because I'm a gigantic nerd. Uh, and when I get stressed out, I like to do a little Emacs Lisp programming because I am, again, a gigantic nerd. And so I asked ChatGPT to generate some code for me to do some like random task I wanted to do. And it generated some Emacs Lisp code that worked reasonably well. And then I'm pretty sure no one has ever asked it to do. And so I guess my question is, in what way can we really say that ChatGPT is really remixing or just remixing content, except in the really, really general sense that all cognition and language is in some broad sense remixing content?
2: I I know that the the technologists pushed back on me for this argument as well. Because I think it, it is a very sort of like reductive um, approach to say that it's it's just remixing content. What I will point out is that look, ChatGPT, it's obviously using some set, some training data set that is likely coming from what is publicly available out there on the internet, and it is likely summarizing that content, even if it's sort of, uh, even if it's creating its own response. It is likely that that response is built on it is really just a summary of what is already out there. And if we're talking just for the purposes of section two thirty and not not regarding the technological differences here for the purposes of section two thirty, summaries of third party content are also protected by two thirty as long as that summary or you know even a direct edit on third party content doesn't change the underlying message. But again, at the end of the day here, one, you're not going to be able to get that output from ChatGPT. You're not going to be able to get that summary unless it's it, the inputs to ChatGPT are worded in such a way that um, sort of dates that, that output or that result in the same way that, you know, you get certain specific results for queries that you input into Google Search, for example. But two... Again, to the extent that ChatGPT hasn't really created anything new and is is summarizing or curating existing content, Section 230 should also apply there as well. But I am sure that there is more technological complexities that, that go into how ChatGPT actually operates. My pushback is less on the technological aspects and more on do those technological differences matter for the application of Section 230.
4: So I I don't think I'm a legal expert in the way that Jess is. And and my guess is I, I don't understand the technology as well as she does either. So I sort of defer to her on both of those. But I think that regardless of whether some courts believe, some courts agree with her entirely on the idea of remixing, I think the question is about where is the technology going? So we're looking at Section 230 right now largely in retrospect, from the perspective of a law that was created in 1996, where many of the technological tools that we use today didn't exist. The main questions I have are when we look forward, how does an evaluation under existing law shape the technology that unfolds? It is called generative AI. And the relevant distinction in the statute is between hosts and things that develop content in part. So I think where the technology is going is to be more and more generative, and probably less and less remixing or just simply surfacing existing third-party content. And if that's the case, then the legal rationale that just is applying depends upon the technology really, I think, not developing to its fullest. And so I think if we want to be in a position of 2050, looking back at 2023, at the dawn of this technology, when we're thinking about the right liability regime that would apply, we want to be doing it in a way that allows the technology to flourish. We certainly also want to cabin risk and we can talk more about how the existing liability regime might do that. But my cons- my principal concern is that the way that it exists today is going to constrain the technology because there are going to be lawyers with the strong analysis that Jess has who walk into the product meetings and say, you can't do that thing that you want to do because we need to ensure that it's more like remixing, for instance.
1: I wonder if you know one way to look at this is kind of the the worse The model works, the more likely it is that it's protected by Section 230, right? The more it's just, you know, taking material from elsewhere and spitting it out, the more likely it's protected by 230. Whereas the more advanced, the more complex, the more unexpected the output is, the less likely it's protected. And therefore, the more carefully we have to think about the legal regime. Is that fair? I think that that's right.
4: I mean, the, like the term, you know, Jess used the term materially contribute from the roommates case. The term in the statute is develop content in part. The name that we have given to this set of technologies is generative AI. It seems to me what we're looking for in the technology is for it to do precisely the things that the law will not want it to do from a liability perspective. And again, it's possible. That, that will be a positive thing. Critics of Section 230, and neither Jess nor I are, are in that camp, but critics of Section 230 believe that that liability regime has enabled technology to develop in ways that create significant external costs to our society. And there is a large group of people who believe that the law should be reformed in ways that result in tech platforms bearing more accountability for content that is on tech platforms. And for people who have that view, we're about to enter a world where we will see how that liability regime plays out in practice. The fear that I have is that it is very difficult, I think, to quantify the harms of a constraining liability regime because we don't know all the use cases that might have entered the world were, if not for a constrained liability regime.
2: Yeah, Matt is driving precisely at the right point here. And I think even this, this discussion that we're having right now really shows how much more difficult this question is going to be you know, when argued in court down the road for, for these products. Um, one of the values of Section 230 is that it helps to avoid some of what we saw with, for example, the Twitter Vitamina case recently in SCOTUS, where the entire You know, all the oxygen in the room was consumed by what is the what does it mean to legally aid or abet terrorism when you're an Internet company? those same questions we're go- are, are, are what we're going to have to, or similar questions are what we're going to have to navigate when we're talking about 230's applicability. And once the courts have to go down the road of uh, questioning whether, whether, for example, ChatGPT is acting, if the algorithms are acting, quote unquote, neutrally, for example, um, or how, how active was the generative AI product in creating or developing the content at issue in whole or part, we actually lose the value of Section 230 entirely because those are questions of fact that will have to go to discovery that will have to be further assessed and evaluated, and the further down the, the case life cycle you go, the more expensive and the more uh, the more time you're going to be spending on on these cases as well. So, you know, in in my in, in pushing back on on Matt's article a little bit, I really did it only to to say that you know there are viable arguments that Section 230 protects, however they're more complicated arguments, they're more difficult arguments, and I am especially worried that those arguments are going to become more difficult depending on what happens with the, the two Supreme Court cases that are going to determine whether algorithms are protected by Section 230 in the first place. It's
1: that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax.
0: And think about
1: work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
2: One size fits all. Seemed like a good idea for clothes.
4: Nice dress. Uh, It's a,
3: it's a t-shirt.
2: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That 's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. so whether you're between jobs coming off a parents' plan or
0: even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com that's uh1.com Hey lawfare listeners Ben Wittes here I want to tell you about the first time I got and enter code lawfare twenty at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare twenty code lawfare twenty.
3: So I, I want to ask both of you a let me call it kind of predictive question about how judges, right? You know how the first district court judge faced with a chat GPT question, you know, will will respond. So my prediction or what seems to be possible, and I'd be very curious, Matt and Jess, to hear what you think is that, you know, when the first ChatGPT lawsuit gets filed, whether for defamation or I'm thinking maybe a uh, intentional affliction of emotional distress claim, if ChatGPT tries to break up someone's marriage or something like that, you know, will the district court try to use the kind of revolutionary aspect of this technology to, for lack of a better term, kind of get out under the shadow of the dominant interpretation of Section 230, which of course is the one from Zoran versus AOL, you know, back from uh, 1997. Because at least the way that I read the last five or six years of Section 230 litigation, you have a lot of courts that are really uncomfortable with how broad the interpretation of Section 230 has become, but they feel constrained by precedent and in particular the reliance interest in that precedent that's been built up over 26, 27 years. So as not to potentially, quote unquote, break the internet by now reading Section 230 narrowly. And it does seem to me that ChatGPT is so different and it is so early in its life cycle that courts might just look at it and say, this is so different. This is so unlike the internet of 1996 that we're just going to hive this off and treat this as a totally, totally different, different thing, which I guess is another way of saying, you know, as a predictive matter, putting aside the legal merits of Matt's argument, I, I do find it plausible. And I'm curious, Matt, if, if you agree, uh, agree that that's a, a plausible outcome in litigation. It seems plausible. It. It actually doesn't
4: seem like the most likely one to me. And I think that that's a good thing. So I think it's it's such a step change in technology that it means that at least my reading of how the statute would apply to lots of iterations of the technology is that you don't have to contort the meaning of Section 230, either the existing statute or how it's been interpreted to find a platform liable. And the general direction of travel here and Republicans and Democrats seem to agree, is that they want to find platforms more liable for content-related stuff online. And I think under the current structure of the statute, that will be relatively easy to do. I do think that that's one of the benefits, actually. I, I am much more scared by trying to unravel core components of Section 230 in ways that I think will be harmful to the internet than I am to finding within the existing balance of Section 230 a way for Certain judges or plaintiffs to re- reach results that they want to reach.
2: I agree mostly with Matt's point here. <laughs> I'm going to push back on the last part, but I, I agree. I think first of all, we're already trending in that direction. We're seeing it with sort of the dangerous design cases, for example. A lot of the Snapchat cases are going in this direction, um, or have gone in this direction. And and Jess, can you can you spell
1: out what those cases are for listeners who aren't familiar?
2: yeah absolutely. So, for example, there's the sort of infamous uh, lemon v snap case Snapchat case that one has to do with tragically teens who ended up in a fatal accident um, because they were using snapchat's uh, speed filter, which I have to say, if I was in the room at the time with Snapchat as their in house counsel, I probably wouldn't have authorized that feature in the first place. but here we are. um The question though had to do with whether Snapchat could use section two thirty to defend Snapchat's argument is obviously that, you know, the teens were the ones that were using the feature, there are other legal ways to use the feature such as, you know, you could use it on a plane, you could use it as the passenger in a vehicle. What it ultimately came down to is that this is a discussion about Snapchat's conduct in dangerously designing the feature and it, the the court basically drew what I think is an arbitrary line between um speech and and the conduct of the service. I, I think it's an arbitrary line for similar reasons that I think the same line that's being drawn in, in Gonzalez with regards to recommendations versus algorithmic recommendations. Um, I, I think it's arbitrary because any time a website is engaging with third-party speech, they're using their publisher or their editorial discretion, which is speech in itself. So a decision to curate content, for example, whether that be through recommendations, whether that be through search results, that in itself is speech. What we're seeing, though, are are, are the courts trying to uh, draw that line. And as a result, we're seeing many plaintiffs bring their cases framed in ways that say that they're not complaining about the underlying content at issue because we have decades of precedence that very clearly shows that if you're, if you're, if you're arguing about the what is essentially third-party content, then you're likely going to be thrown out uh, under 230. So instead, they're trying these, well, we're arguing about the, the services conduct themselves and creating the algorithms and creating the speed filter, for example. I think those are the types of arguments that we're going to see come up for generative AI products. And that's sort of where the the 230, at least for the courts, that's sort of where 230 is trending. Now, I am pushing back on the on the last point that Matt made with regards to, and I, I think I, I understood it correctly with regards to you know Congress building in a reform to 230 versus the courts. The courts' treatment of Section 230 recently is actually what keeps me up at night. In a way, you know, I think it, it operates like essentially a reform to Section 230, in that the entire point of Section 230 is to guarantee a national standard to Internet companies and users that they are not going to be held liable for content that they did not create, speak, develop, etc. When we start to get into courts coming to their own decisions about uh, how Section Two Thirty should or should not apply, what we create is essentially a patchwork of decisions where you know it matters as to what state you're in, it matters as to what court you're in, as to whether Section Two Thirty applies or not. And so now the conversation in the room with the engineers and the lawyers becomes well. We're in the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit has not been friendly to, you know, algorithmic design. So we may not want to create this new feature for our generative AI product. Versus if you're in a different circuit, for example. So that is that is a result I I wouldn't want to see, but unfortunately, it continues to emerge.
4: I I agree entirely. I agree entirely with that. I mean, I think Jess and I like have have the share a shared sense of kind of the the what we would see as the preferred direction of travel for section 230 law and jurisprudence generally at least I guess the 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 thing that I was trying to get at is that right now I think the law stands as a barrier in many ways to what a lot of individuals want to achieve politically there, there is this issue where there is divergence in the rationale for what they want to achieve politically but both Republicans and Democrats want there to be significant reforms of Section 230 to hold tech platforms more accountable for content. And the law, I think in a positive way, is, is serving as a restraint on that. The challenge is that the political appetite's not getting satisfied. And so there is this strong interest in reform that, and, and in accountability that can't really get met. And, and so all I was trying to say is that I think that the fact that it's such a harder case for generative AI tools to make that they are protected by 230 will mean that existing law will will enable some, some critics to fulfill more of their political appetites in court um, than they've been able to do to date. And that to me is preferable than re-architecting existing 230 jurisprudence
1: so we've we've mentioned the Gonzalez case, which I think is sort of hovering over us as we discuss this because of course uh Justice Gorsuch during oral argument, raised the question of you know well, what about chat GPT?" Um, which certainly suggested to me that at least one of the justices on the court has been playing around with it uh, in his spare time. I don't know about the others. <laughs> what
3: what could go wrong, if I may just interject, right. <laughs> with Supreme Court justices playing with We don't with need clerks GBT. anymore. We
1: can just use uh, chat GPT. Uh, uh, so, so I'm curious for both of your sense about, you know, if the Gonzalez argument gave you any sense of how the Supreme Court might think about the interaction of Section 230 and chat GPT.
4: So I'm curious what what Jess thought of D- Justice Scorsese's question. I thought it was almost it, it was it was essentially a statement of saying, "Of course, generative AI tools are going to be liable. We know certain cases where Section 230 provides protections. Of course, we know tools like ChatGPT will not receive protection. And the whole question in the case is something that falls somewhere in between recommendation algorithms. Whether that." provides protection. And that—that that is, I think, my concern about how things will unfold from here, which is that even if some courts agree with Jess about her argument about certain kinds of features still receiving 230 protection, I think there are probably many district court judges who will see things as Justice Gorsuch ha- seems to be seeing them in part because probably Justice Gorsuch indicated how he perceives them district court judges will reach an outcome that increases, that creates a fairly significant liability regime for these tools.
2: I share a similar concern as Matt as well. I I will say this, I think where uh, Justice Gorsuch was on the one hand suggesting that ChatGPT and other similar products would not be able to use Section 230 as a viable defense, he also seemed to understand though on the other hand that you know it, it's incredibly hard to distinguish between neutral and non-neutral tools and so what i'm more concerned about is how the court will one decide the case but in doing so how will they try to write in an arbitrary test for when a service is acting neutrally or non-neutrally and then what will that mean for uh generative ai products as well and Matt made a really important point as well, which is that how are other district courts going to read such an opinion or um, make their own, you know, navigate the, their own fact patterns um, as well? The problem with generative AI and its intersection with the law is that generative AI tech is complicated and it's only going to get more complicated. And so you need a justice or you need a judge who equally appreciates the technological complexities. As well as the stakes at issue um, for catering to, to for continuing to cater to online expression and technological innovation, that's going to be crucial for defendants to to spell out for future cases. But once we again, once we go down this neutrality of the algorithm versus non-neutrality, I, I don't even know how how you know what that would mean for a generative AI product. You know, for example, when you ask ChatGPT to write a poem about Biden, it gives you a poem. Um, when you ask it to write a poem about Trump, it refuses to give a response. Is that the is that open AI, the algorithm that open AI is, is employing? Is that neutral or is it non-neutral? It it sounds non-neutral, but at the same time does neutrality apply to, does this neutrality test apply to the content at issue or does it apply to the guidelines that the, uh, that the company has set up surrounding the algorithms that are um, driving these generative AI products? These are all questions that the court's going to have to wrestle with. And it goes back to my earlier point, which is once the court starts wrestling with these questions and it becomes more of a, a lengthier case deciding whether Section 230 applies or not, Section 230's value is moot.
1: Yeah, I will say just as an example of just how complicated ChatGPT is, that uh, I believe I read an article uh, that uh, open the OpenAI engineers actually don't know why it won't write a poem about Donald Trump. So I I don't know how that would factor into analysis by any court. I do want to take us to the policy question here. So both of you have kind of made the the case that you know we we don't want open AI Uh, to be potentially held liable for the for things that chat GPT says. Um, And I want to ask you why. But as a way of doing that, I want to kind of play devil's advocate here and say, you know, there are a lot of ways in which as we've discussed, this is kind of a political moment where people are interested in greater regulation and accountability for tech companies, whatever that means in any particular case. And there is a lot of frustration with the sense that tech companies have sort of gotten away for too long with putting out things into the world without thinking about the real world effects. And harms that they can have. And I will say, I have certainly seen that kind of discussion around chat GPT. We ran a piece on Lawfare uh, about how it's possible to sort of engineer the system into producing really vile, racist, hateful, anti-Semitic and misogynist content. Um, And there's a question about whether or not OpenAI has done well enough in in preventing against that. So make the case for me, you know, why I shouldn't just say, OpenAI doesn't have 230 protection for ChatGPT. Great. That's exactly what we want. Why is that wrong?
4: So uh, so it's a big question because I think it gets to the heart of how we view and perceive technology. I, I think I generally view technology on balance as delivering expanded political and civil rights, um, expanded human rights generally, and lowering barriers to entry and costs that enable people to do things that are positive in their lives. That's very different from saying that technology is only good. It is not only good. Um, I just think on balance, the tools that we have created have enabled on, on balance positive things in the world. And it's very easy to discount those positive things when you're looking at some of the harmful things. But most of the analysis of harm, I think, tends to often sort of be, um, it often tends to look at numerators without looking at denominators. We identify... Harmful content that we see, and we talk about how problematic that is, but we don't put it in a broader context when we're looking at positive speech and speech overall and value that's been enabled. I think that's a hard argument to make in the current moment. Um, It's hard for a couple of different reasons. One, I think Quinta, you you've said accurately what the kind of current skepticism is of tech platforms and of technology generally. I, I think there that that skepticism definitely exists, and I think it also is very difficult to quantify the value than the loss as a result of not having certain innovation. Um, Jess and I were at an event on Monday, the State of the Net event, and I was sort of using lost innovation as a shorthand for what I see as the lost value of this technology if there's a liability regime that doesn't allow it to flourish. And I think when you say lost innovation right now, most people think super wealthy people in Silicon Valley won't get as wealthy as they might otherwise be. They think of it like in sort of economic terms. And and really, I think innovation sort of sounds like this thing that isn't particularly valuable. Like, why do we want to pat the pockets of people in Silicon Valley? Um, That's not actually the way that I'm using it. I, I think of it as a way to bring value and rights to traditionally marginalized people to to, I think, level playing field in our society in really important ways, to connect people to government in important ways, to enable access to information in important ways. And it's totally possible that I'm wrong about that. But I think that we're headed toward a world where a lot of that is off the table. And that's problematic, not just because we lose it, but I think it's also problematic because it's going to be very hard to quantify. So the world we're in now is like we see all this harm and we say, oh, look at all this harm. That's a problem it is much harder to identify the lost value and to really try to take stock of what that is. And one of the things that I advocated in the piece that probably is like the most realistic outcome, I think, of the various different things I presented is, I think it would be helpful that if we don't reform the liability regime to allow generative AI tools to really grow in the way that they're capable of, my hope is that the community of people who support really valuable research in these types of areas will fund researchers to help quantify the lost value as a result of the liability regime that we have in place today.
2: I absolutely agree with everything Matt said. And I will add that I think it's important to keep in mind sort of the trade-offs here, right? So for for any time that a service can be held liable for all of the claims that we discussed today, that operates more as a um, and more as a disincentive for the service to continue functioning to continue hosting user created speech to continue innovating but it's also a signal to any other companies and we've seen many of them pop up right now any other ai uh, generative ai companies from even getting started and it's not just from you know the point where the the generative ai company is thinking we don't have the legal resources the trust and safety resources the engineering resources to mitigate all of the different potential online harms that come from putting a product out there on the internet, but it also comes down to venture capitalists as well. VCs do, are, are less likely or less inclined to give seed money or funding to brand new startups that carry a lot of legal risk with them. The nice thing about Section 230 is that it levels the playing field when it comes to political culture wars, for example, in this country. You know, what's the way that we can um, combat problematic speech? well in this country it's 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 more speech and so for example if folks don't like that chat gpt doesn't give a uh, an output for when it when it's asked a question about trump maybe there's another generative ai tool that somebody has you know a single individual has created that is programmed to give uh, a response that's potentially more balanced for example but we wouldn't know that or be able to have or see those products if those you know market entrants feel like they're hamstrung by the immense looming liability because they have no protection for, again, what's what happens when you put their when you put your product and service out on the Internet and you expose it to everyone's different takes, for example. So that's sort of what I think is is at risk here is is curbing mar- market entrance and at the same time entrenching, you know, entrenching the incumbents.
3: So, you know, Jess and Matt, so it's interesting, right? Because you started off disagreeing, right, at the beginning of this about whether Section 230 does apply, but you both seem very, you know, very aligned on the idea that Section 230 should apply. And I want to push you both a little bit on a sort of implication of the argument, which is that liability will discourage innovation, which is absolutely correct, right? Um, And that there really are trade-offs here. And my question for you two is how far would you push that argument? Which is to say, you know, we're talking about this in a very section of section 230 frame, in part because that's what Matt, Matt's piece was about, but also because section 230 sort of has become, for I think somewhat idiosyncratic reasons, the main paradigm in which we think about tech regulation uh, in many ways, um, at least in the United States, which is actually quite a strange way of thinking about it if you consider all the other ways you regulate different parts of the economy and society. Um, you know, one can imagine uh, non Section two hundred and thirty way of thinking about generative AI in the sense of let's say an administrative agency, um, you know, issuing regulations, or we could regulate it in lots of ways. But it does occur to me that taking again both of your arguments to the logical conclusion, you wouldn't advocate for any regulation at all, because again, right, that regulation, especially at this incipient moment, uh, this incipient start of generative AI, right, which is probably one percent uh we've seen you know 1% of what it will ultimately do over the next five, 10 years. And I just want to ask if if that's really what you two think is right, because on the one hand, I see the argument from innovation. On the other hand, you know, as much as I look forward to um our robot overlords in 2050, I am a little worried that we are making it, you know, very, very easy for these companies who are engaged in a frankly arms race of bigger and more powerful models to you know, quote unquote, innovate without any government oversight of what they're going to do to society?
2: Yeah, I think that's an important question. Um, Look, from my perspective, I take a very absolutist approach to speech. And that's, you know, primarily because I worry about what would happen if we build an online um, ecosystem where only the non-controversial uh, folks with majority attributes get to speak because that's considered the you know the the acceptable pro social norm for whatever era and time that we're in when it comes to uh, online communication. So I you know I, I always I understand the trade offs when it comes to the harms, but at the end of the day, I I feel very strongly that the cure for online harmful content at least is the ability for other folks to push back, for services to be able to incentivize pro social speech. Um, And to use technology such as algorithms to make sure that they're continuing to elevate high quality relevant content over some of the low quality harmful content as well. And I worry that any regulation, at least when it comes to Section 230, will only make the Internet services jobs harder in trying to get to that ultimate sort of pro-social result. I would say that the other issue, and this came up at the State of the Net conference on Monday that, that Matt mentioned, the other thing that regulators need to do is to think about again what exactly is the problem at hand here that they're trying to solve with regulation because to me it seems like when it comes to generative ai the problem is that people suck sometimes and especially lots of anonymous people online that you know once they all once folks get together and they train these algorithms to spit out really harmful hateful content i don't know what regulation you would implement that would stop that underlying deeply human societal problem that we have. Now, if we are going to talk regulation, I don't think 230 is the right direction to go, but I I often wonder if there are other avenues that we can pursue, perhaps in federal criminal law, for example. As we know, Section 230 doesn't apply to federal criminal prosecution. So um, if Congress wanted to make a law that, make a federal criminal law that punishes services for algorithms that result in some sort of harm, like, for example, directing people to buy, you know, fentanyl on on some service, or if ChatGPT was for some reason share, sharing with folks how they can make a bomb or, or something like that, you know, that would probably be a, a better direction than to go to go through 230. Of course, the caveat there is that when you're talking about fen- federal criminal laws and expression, you run right up against the First Amendment. So it's a tricky problem for Congress. The, that's why it's so important sure. to understand whether you know, this is, if this is a, a solution in search of a problem, or if these are just deeply societal things that we're not going to be able to, to mitigate.
4: Alan, I think it's a, a very fair question and a critique, particularly in, in light of the direction that, that Jess and I have been going in. I, I don't want to send the signal. And I don't, and I think based on what Jess just said, I don't, I don't think she intends to either that the idea that no regulation is necessarily the right outcome. I think the ideal thing would be that you have a liability regime That incentivizes companies and requires companies to bear costs that are aligned with the social costs of the products that they produce in the world. I saw Jeff Manny give the Hayek lecture at Duke last week, and he presented a case that was actually very critical of Section 230 along these lines, making the case that there is meritorious litigation that because of 230 never gets its day in court and that there are a variety of social harms that tech platforms, at least in some cases, don't bear any any of the costs for, so I don't think an outcome is the one where chat GPT and other generative AI tools are just entirely off the hook. I think the ideal one is one where the social costs are sort of appropriately priced into the development of the product and My concern is that the current liability regime won't do that, and that we don't really have a mechanism in our law uh, or I should say it's a mechanism really in our policy process that we need to try to figure out what that regime. Might look like um, you, I think, have really made this point quite eloquently in the past. Um, it, at least it, I, I heard it in the um, in the Gonzalez preview podcast that you guys did. That one of the benefits you thought of an adverse result for tech platforms in the Gonzalez case is that they would then be incentivized to go to Congress and ask for reform that would make Section two hundred and thirty better. I think that's that's a really interesting idea and it's going to be very interesting in this context because to date tech platforms have basically argued that section 230 for the most part shouldn't be changed. I think to the extent that tech platforms want to see generative AI tools really be used to the fullest extent possible, they're going to need to start advocating for some reforms that actually set up a proactive regime in this area that is workable for them. And my hope is that that regime will do a better job of pricing the social cost of the technology, than I think the current one will likely do.
1: Well, I can say that the one thing that I'm sure about in this space is that we are going to keep talking about it for a long time to come. Matt, Jess, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thank you for having us.
4: Thanks so much.
1: You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, a her podcast series on the information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare, where you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. This podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yann. As always, thanks for listening.
3: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all.